1: Hello and welcome to episode 112 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode, I am joined by an absolute legend, a photographer who created the enduring and defining image of the rock star as we know it today, Gerard Mankovich. His portfolio showcases striking and beautiful photographs from the 60s to the noughties. We're talking The Stones, Jimi Hendrix, The Small Faces, Marianne Faithful, P.P. Arnold, Led Zeppelin, Eurythmics, Kate Bush, Oasis, and many more. And a few links to Mr. Weller we're going to dive into. He was the photographer for the cover of The Jam's second album, This Is The Modern World. There's also a lovely shot for an advert for Voxamps with the Style Council with Paul and Mick as well. And a story you might never have heard before about absolute beginners. In 2016, Gerard was awarded the distinction of a Fellowship of the Royal Photographic Society. I think it's fair to say this guy's pretty good. Let's get into it. Gerard Mankovich, thanks for joining me.
2: It's an absolute pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Now look we find
1: you clearly in like the archive here there's beautiful shelving at the back which suggests to me that this is your studio would that be fair
2: It is it's my studio office it's where my archive lives currently it's where I work and make prints and do my stuff it's in a building that we we built in the garden of the house that we moved into about 11 years ago
1: Nice okay so this is where the magic happens right now
2: Yes we hope <laughs> <laughs> When the magic strikes me. Hopefully.
1: <laughs> now, look, this all started for you at a ridiculously young age, wasn't it? Was it like 16 when you started in this, this world? of Let, Let's call it pop star photography at the time, because I guess that's kind of what it was.
2: It was very young. You know, like a lot of things in life, there is an, an accidental element to it. And I was very fortunate by breaking into music very early and very unexpectedly, I'd assumed that my career would be in show business somewhere, because that's the business that I was brought up in. And I loved show business, I loved theatre, I love film, I love music. And I imagined that I would be a theater, a theater photographer. Mm -hmm. That I would photograph productions for the front of house. And indeed, I did that when I was 16. I shot the production pictures for a musical, an American musical called Fiorello, that was being done at the Bristol Old Vic. And I had a contact there and they invited me down for a few days and I photographed the production. Love the pictures, they used them on the front of house and then the play transferred to the Piccadilly Theatre in London and my pictures were used for that. So I became and still am the youngest photographer ever to have a London West End front of house and I was 16. You know, and that's how I thought I was gonna be. I thought I was gonna be a showbiz photographer working in theatre and that I would generally naturally progress to directing movies. That's that's <laughs> that's how I saw my career path initially. And then I met Jeremy Clyde, uh, and Chad Stewart, who were singing as a duo called Chad and Jeremy. So this was 63, and they'd just been discovered or about to be discovered by John Barry, the great composer, who at that point was an uh, a man for an independent company called uh, Ember Records. And they'd signed Chad and Jeremy, and I photographed Chad and Jeremy, and then I photographed other artists for Ember. I did my first album cover for Ember uh, with the great jazz singer Annie Ross. And then I did Chad and Jeremy's first album cover, and I started doing regular stuff. And suddenly, I was in the music business and surrounded by young musicians, often my age or a little older. We were speaking the same language, we were digging the same things, we, you know, we wanted the same stuff. And... um, uh, it just seemed like a natural place to, for me, and it, it was—it was showbiz. I mean, I always considered the pop business, the music business, to be part of showbiz, always. And so, this was my heaven, really. And through Chad and Jeremy, I met Marianne, faithful, and and said you know, I'd love to photograph you. And she said, oh, yes, fine. You know, pick me up tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So I picked her up and whisked her off to Barnes Common or Wimbledon Common, one of my favourite places, and photographed her and then got to know her really well, became close with her. And she became a, a great friend and, and continues to be so today. She was managed by Andrew Lou Oldham, who also managed the Rolling Stones. And I did a series of photographs of Marianne in a pub called the Salisbury in St. Martin's Lane in London, with the hope that they would end up on the cover of her first album. And Andrew liked those photographs and asked me to come and meet the Stones at his office. And then I got working with the Stones. So, This sort of fantastic series of doors opening for me um, meant that I was I was working in the music business age. 17, 16, 17, and that was it. And I never never really looked back and I never really wanted to change and I never made the transition to being a film director. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the
1: swinging 60s we're talking about as well, right? So the Stones are, I mean, a huge big band, the, you know, the, the Beatles versus the Stones and all that. But it's also a period where Pop star photography, doesn't, I mean, it didn't really exist until that time, did it? So you're making up as you go along, essentially, right?
2: Completely. And it's very interesting that you should raise this point, because pop star photography, music photography at that point, was very show busy. Glittery teeth, frilly shirts... Sparkly Jackets. It was very much. And the the general career path for a pop star would be two or three hits, a few tours, and then variety shows. And then if you're lucky, a transition into movies like Cliff Richard, you know, or Tommy Steele or whatever, but the it was very much show busy. And my generation really wanted to change that. We we wanted to be gritty and grainy, moody and sexy, non-smiling, not sparkly. And that appealed to me. And it was the general feeling amongst the young Artists And, of course, the Stones epitomized that. They'd already rejected the uniform idea, would have been the automatic procedure. You know, you stick the band in a uniform. Every band had a uniform. The Beatles, of course, epitomized that. And the Stones rejected that. I mean, Andrew tried, and it obviously didn't work. You know, it just wasn't right for the band. And they rejected it, and and they were one of the first bands, as far as I know, that were presented as five individuals. And and so we were trying to break the rules, reject the tradition, you know, trying to push it forward in a way that we thought was appropriate. And we did that. I mean one of my first sessions with Chad and Jeremy was never used because it showed the two of them on a bomb site peeing against a, a, a bomb urinal. So it was a it was a gentleman's urinal, you know, with the cistern on the wall and, and everything. And they had their backs to the camera with their guitars on their backs, and they were apparently having a pee. And, I, and it was perfectly innocent. You know, they were making sort of slightly surprised faces at the camera. But it was it was never used at the time because it was considered to be much too edgy. <laughs> No, much too. It was rude. And I think that we wanted to be naughty and rude. (laughs) <laughs> I love
1: that But <laughs> that's what was edgy <laughs> that was what was considered offensive yeah <laughs>
2: um,
1: and they, I mean they, I have to say I've got this fabulous book of yours which is rock and roll photography and um, people should dig this out if they possibly can because it's got lots of these stories lots of these photos in it when we talk about the stones and we'll come on to the jam we'll come on to Weller because obviously this is a Weller fan podcast but yeah. it would it would be remiss of me not to talk about all this yeah. other stuff when you talk about the stones are, are there particular sessions particular moments that stand out?
2: They all do for different reasons. You know, the first session stands out because it's the first session and it was exciting and it was nerve wracking. It was thrilling, you know, because I knew that I was with, they were the biggest band I'd ever worked with. They hadn't had Satisfaction yet. Satisfaction had not been the global hit yet, hadn't been released. And so they weren't quite as consolidated as they were to become through 1965, but they were still... Seen and presented very much as the competition for the Beatles, and the Beatles were enormous. So, you know, it was a big band, an important session. And it was Andrew Lou Golden as well, who was, you know, an important man in the music business, a young man, full of ideas, full of vision, full of energy. And it was important for me to impress. Everybody. And, and so it was an important session. That was an exciting session. And out of that session, I got my first album cover with the band, which was called Out of Our Heads. And, um, you know, that was a huge moment because that really embedded me with, with Andrew and the Stones. That that I would say I was the unofficial official photographer because, you know, other people were working with the band at the time, other photographers. But I, I was pretty much the standby photographer throughout 65, 66 and into 67 up until the point that, that they split with Andrew, their manager.
1: And were you a fan? So we talk about the, the love of photography. Were you fans of the of these artists that you were working with as well? Was it the type of thing you'd go home and listen to?
2: I, I was certainly a fan of the Stones. I was a fan of the Beatles, but I didn't like their image. Their image was too reminiscent of the traditional showbiz image. It's too clean. It just didn't ring true. And those wonderful pictures pictures of the Beatles in Hamburg by Astrid Kirscher hadn't really been seen very widely. You know, they were, I, I don't know whether they were actually locked up by Brian Epstein, but, but they, you know, they weren't really seen. And so uh, I was a fan of the Stones. I'd seen them on television shows. I loved them. I thought they were naughty. I liked their music. I wouldn't say I was a particular fan of any genre at that time. I liked the blues. I liked r I liked rock and roll. I loved pop. I've always it's love pop music. Yeah, so I definitely was a fan of the sounds. It's never been a prerequisite for me to, you know, to love the music in order to photograph the artist. That was never really, thank goodness, I, was, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't have photographed a
1: lot of the people. <laughs> well, we should list all those. No, I'm joking. Uh, um, <laughs> um, uh, you've, you've come up on the podcast before with um, the lovely super legend that is P.P. Arnold, Pat Arnold. You've worked with Pat since 66 to now. This is a relationship. I can't even bother, be bothered to do the maths of my head how I many years that is. But a long, a long, long time, right? What is it that when you get a connection like that with a, an artist or uh, let's call them a subject in terms of photography but with somebody or something and you want to go back you want to photograph again what is it about that connection that just works?
2: I suppose firstly it th- these connections that were made in the 60s uh, have survived. A lot of them have survived. They were special partly because we were all experiencing it for the first time. We were all in the same boat. I mean, you know, I'm not suggesting for a minute I'm in the same boat as Mick Jagger, but we were all in the same boat in terms of the period and the time, the rule-breaking, the pushing the boundaries, the experiencing what was going on, the dealing with the business at the same time. We all have similar experiences and, and, and lots of shared contacts and people and Events. I, I think that with with me and Pat, I think it's the fact that um, I always treated my subjects very seriously. I always treated my subjects with um, with dignity and with a um, a concern for them and, and how they came across in my pictures. I never wanted to impose anything. I just wanted to try and find images that worked for them and that would appeal to their market that were appropriate. And I think that pat came over, as you know, you've had the stories. She came over with Ike and Tina Turner. She came from an industry that was just completely different to what was going on in the English industry at the time, and the British industry at the time, I should say. And so to be taken seriously as a solo artist was just a huge thing for Pat. And she was such a lovely person, and she was so sweet, and she was so cute, and she was so wonderfully talented. She had such an amazing voice that... I, you know, I just, we clicked and I got some really lovely pictures. And I think I caught something about her that she wasn't really sure herself was there. And that's just stayed with us. You know, she's always liked me photographing her. I've always enjoyed photographing her. I photographed her not consistently through her career, but regularly and certainly uh, a lot recently. You know, I did the new album, I did the. Album before that, and that my it's my picture of her on her book. So, yeah, very close to Pat, and I feel you know very we we are strongly bonded
1: now. Coming on to Paul Weller, I would imagine you getting the gig for This Is The Modern World. Paul must have been aware of this background, these artists, because he loved these bands, this music, the world that you were kind of inhabiting during the 1960s that we talk about. Would that be true? Did you have that conversation? And and talk me through how you got that gig for that album.
2: I really got the gig for the album because of Bill Smith, the art director and designer. And he'd worked with the jam pretty much, I think, from the beginning. I think he did, you know, the first singles and first album. And he, I worked with Bill regularly And, you know, he decided or he asked me how, you know, whether I'd be able to work with the, the band. Of course, I was thrilled to. It's sort of odd. I knew that Paul and the band had a huge thing for the 60s and particularly for the small faces who I'd worked with a lot and was quite closely connected with. But at the time, I don't think any of them in the band were particularly communicative. I don't remember having great conversations with them. I remember not a reticence, but a reserve in them. Um, not an aggression, but a sort of independence. I, I think I was, I think they saw me a bit as an outsider. I, I didn't feel particularly, I didn't feel particularly comfortable with them and it really wasn't until i photographed paul later in style council that we had that conversation and, and 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 he was you know he was terrific it was very nice to talk to him about that but at the time of modern world and uh, absolute beginners because we shot We stupidly got involved in shooting a video, Bill Smith and I, for Absolute Beginners, which was a disaster. But they weren't, you know, I wouldn't say they were friendly or welcoming, quite honestly. They were reserved, independent. They were a unit. They were tight. And they weren't really going to let anybody in. And I, I think it was quite an edgy session for us because, well, not, not necessarily for Bill, but for me, because we, it was technically a bit complicated. It, it, uh, you know, it's under the Westway uh, near Shepherd's Bush, which we felt epitomized visually. Uh, aspects of the modern world that the band were referencing and um, it's called a mixed light thing so I'm lighting the band with flash but I'm using daylight as well to try and get an exposure in the distance of the tower blocks and the sky etc etc so it's not in those days it wasn't technically particularly easy and i work off a tripod and i just feel as though the band would have liked to have been looser and more spontaneous and not as tightly controlled as 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 i needed them to be for this picture. not that they didn't do a good job i mean it's a you know it's a great shot mm. i'm really proud of it and i'm really pleased with it and thrilled to have done it mm. here we are look
1: yeah. I mean, that, bu- that buzz of having an album yeah your your photo on an album cover must never go away right
2: well yes it's a thrill i mean you know it was what what I really wanted. You know, remember albums were are were big, you know, 12 inches square. That's a a big space to have your photograph. Fortunately, we, you know, my generation was sort of pushing for not conceptual albums necessarily, but to shoot specifically for albums. I mean, that that image is shot specifically for that album. But going back to the 60s, out of our heads was not shot specifically as an album cover. It was selected afterwards as an album cover. And so, you know, we were pushing all the time to try and make our photographs work on album covers, and when it came to a point where you're actually working specifically for an album cover. It's exciting, but there's quite a lot of pressure. Back in the 60s, you'd shoot a lot of material. I'd try and make sure as many of the frames, as many of the setups I did, would work for an album cover, because I knew that if they did, there was a good chance they'd be chosen for an album cover. But we would just shoot a lot of stuff and try and make it as good as possible. But as it became more disciplined and more focused and more conceptualized, in a way, there was more pressure because, you know, the uh, the band were making themselves available to to cover and they, you know, they're busy and they've got lots of things. So yeah, it was it wasn't the easiest of sessions, and and then there was the Incident with Paul's jumper, which I'm sure you know about.
1: <laughs> well, we know about the arrows on the fronts of it as well, and this being gaffer tape.
2: But it's it only I mean, Bill Smith might have another interpretation and Paul, if he remembers, might might have another one. But my memory is that the sweater he was wearing, which might have been a very, very cool piece of fashion, I really don't know. It was probably CNA. It was probably very nice, yes. <laughs> it was it was a bit dull. I mean, there's no other, you know, there's no two words about it. It was a bit dull. And he was right in the foreground, excuse me, and I, and I wanted it to say something. Others had, you know, I can't remember what they were wearing, but they were wearing, they were a bit funkier. And there was this sort of rather dull schoolboy sweater. I think I said to him, that might have been Bill. I might have said to Bill, and Bill might have said to him, but one way or the other, we, we plucked up the courage to say, hey, Paul, you know, anything we can do about a sweater? You know, it's, it's a bit boring. And my memory is that he grabbed the black gaffer tape and he put on these two arrows. And I, my memory is that he just did it. You know, they're perfect, and it was just—it was a brilliant, you know—it was a moment of genius actually, and it, you know, I don't—I I don't remember it any other way. And as I say, maybe if you get Bill Smith on one day, he'll tell you different. But but that's how I remember it. And that's the gist of it, and I think that encapsulates pretty much what happened, and that—that's it. And he put the arrows on the jumper, and and and, and sort of went, you know. How's that sort of thing? And I went, "Oh, that's great, thank you." And I shot
1: it because <laughs> it's, it's also funny because it's not like it's not it doesn't look staged in the sense that they're not all looking to camera, they're not all smiling. It's not all cheese. Off you go. Bruce looks very deep and moody, um, but but I mean, Weller looks pissed
2: off. <laughs> well, I, absolutely, Weller looks pissed off, and I, I and they were smoking, which which everybody did, and everybody was able to do and allowed to do. You know, there was no, no thought about that. He, he does look pissed off. And I think they were a bit pissed off. I don't remember any I don't really remember any good vibes. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't really remember how they feel or felt about the cover. I thought it was a great cover. Uh, I thought it was a really powerful image and certainly it goes down very well, you know, at my exhibitions and when I show it. But as I say, it wasn't until, and I bumped into him in the street, I bumped into him in Charlotte Street. And it's a funny thing I bumped into him on the corner of Charlotte Street and Mortimer Street or something. And he was, he was, I, I don't know what he was doing. And I went, oh, hi, Paul. And he and he and he looked at me for a second and I said, Gary Magney. He went, Oh, yeah, right. Blah, 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 blah. And we had a nice chat. Again, he took us back to the small faces almost immediately, you know. I saw so I have a I have good feelings about then, but not great memories of that session, if you see what I mean.
1: That took me through the disaster as absolute beginners then. So what went wrong there? Well. (laughs) Big swig of water.
2: Yeah. um, (laughs) What happened was that Bill Smith and I decided that we would join forces to shoot videos, promotional videos. I'd never really made the transition to directing. I was almost certainly never going to be a film director but I never made that transition as a music photographer to directing I, I don't know why I got asked to do a couple of videos I did a great video for an artist called Chris Spedding a great guitarist for Mickey Mouse uh, Rack uh, early in 70, in the 70s and I I thought it was a masterpiece <laughs> Chris thinks it's completely stupid now um, and I think it was you know I, I, but it was a, we had a go at it and it was linked to the album cover I did for him but it never took off you know and nobody seemed interested in me try, becoming or directing their, their videos which I think was quite upsetting at the time and then Bill and I joined forces the Absolute Beginners video came up we came up with an idea very illustrative of the song. We used the same production company that had done the specials Ghost Town, which was one of the hot videos of the year. And we loved it. And I love the values and blah, blah, blah. And... We did complicated storyboards and and everything, and we laid out exactly how we saw it, everything. And everybody seemed excited about it. The record company seemed excited about it. The band seemed excited about it. But when they actually arrived for the shoot, they were just so uncommitted. And it was as though everything that we were doing came as a surprise to them and that they weren't (laughs) really interested in doing it. And that, you know, they had to walk through. The halls and I, anyway, it was awful. It was an awful shoot, and I remember saying after the first take it was a long. The band were walking, and the camera had to pan along with the band. And I said to the cameraman afterwards, because you, you know we didn't have video film, you know, so we didn't have any way of seeing it until you have the rushes the next day. I said to the cameraman, I said, you know, how was it? He said, oh, it's great. I said, well, let's do one more. So we did one more. And I said to him, how was that? He said, I think that was even better. So I said, okay, great. And then when we saw both takes, the rushes, it was horrible. You know, the the band was out of focus. We lost one of them. I mean, it was a (laughs) horrible thing. I was so disappointed. And we edited it and it came together in the editing room. And then we showed it, and, and the record company and the band just sort of rejected it out of hand. And it was a disaster, absolute disaster. Wow. And does this exist somewhere? I've not seen this, is it? Yes, it exists. In fact, um in fact, it was shown at that thing at Somerset House,
1: you know. Oh, the, the exhibition, was it? Right, okay. Yeah,
2: we, we dug it out. I've got it. I've got it in a drawer, right? But, <laughs> yeah. I mean, as a sort of museum piece, you know, as a... As a but as an experience, it was horrible. And it, it, in fact, it really convinced me that I just, at that point in time, that I just really, you know, I wasn't cut out for making films. I mean, it, it, I... I I wanted to, I thought I could do it. But in the end, I just, it just wasn't me. Every time I got engaged in a project that involved film, it never worked out for me. And so I just, you know, shrunk away with my tail firmly between my legs and said, well, this is not for me. You know, there's no point. I love photography. I'm successful at that. People want me to do that. Why You know, for what? Why rock the boat, you
1: know? To say successful is an understatement. Goodness me, the amount of amazing artists that you've photographed and iconic images that we... Know and love from people like you know Kate Bush, uh, Eurythmics, Hendrix. I mean, it's in, honestly incredible. And we'll share some in the show notes of this podcast. You mentioned the Style Council, so you had another experience, with, another crack at Weller, if you like, and a better experience. This was was it originally an advert for Vox speakers, or did it become that afterwards?
2: No, it was. It was and It was shot as an advert. I I, I had a good friend. Who was the, uh, uh, an advertising art director. And I, and at that time, I can't remember the exact date, but I can't really, I really can't remember. What would it have been? 84, 85, something like
1: yeah, that. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah.
2: But I was doing a lot of advertising work. I was still doing my music. I never stopped doing music, but I was doing a lot of advertising photography, which I loved, incidentally. I had a good friend. And he was asked to do a, a series of adverts for I don't know whether it was for the company that owned Marshall and Vox, and uh, there was a guitar brand in it. We did, I, um, but I did a series of adverts for them, and included with Style Council and the Vox speakers. And we had this idea of the back of a tour bar, tour truck filled, and you know I wanted to get the sense of the road, and we, and it was very graphic. It's a very graphic photograph. It's the back of the truck with the doors open and Mick is one side of the back of the truck, if you see what I mean. And Paul's actually standing with his back against the, 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 the speakers. And it was a really nice session. I mean, it was a Paul and Mick were great. You know, they didn't really have to do very much, but they were great. Paul was very friendly. Uh, yeah, again, it was a very nice picture, and it was a very nice series of ads. Um, so I, you know, I was pleased, pleased to have shot it, and very pleased to have worked with with Weller again, even though it was just you know one afternoon.
1: The Style Council comes to an end in the eighties. Um, when we talk about Britpop, Paul. He's kind of lumped in it, but you can't work out whether he's separate or you know, was he part of Britpop or not, but let's say that he was. I mean, you were in the Britpop age, again, working with some incredible acts, people like Catatonia, Ride, Sway, and Oasis. I mean, the big one that we kind of, you know, everybody knows and loves, right? This passion is still, it's not gone away in any of that time. You're still oh. in love i taking the pics. It,
2: it was always my first love. I mean, one of the reasons I went into advertising photography in the '80s was because I hadn't been able to make any money. You know, I had I had two kids. I needed to make some money with my camera, and I wasn't making it in music. I was having a great time. I was taking some great photographs, working with some marvelous people. I was earning a living. But I wasn't making any money and, and, and advertising paid much better. And, and I loved it. I had a big studio to support. And it, it was just it fitted in with my career at that point really well. So I was able to do the music, but I was also an advertising photographer, which was pretty much supporting everything. Mm. When the whole 90s Britpop thing, I mean, I was shooting quite a lot for Mojo. And like Ride came to me because they they liked my stones between the buttons early in the morning, misty photographs. And so we stayed up all night. They wanted to stay up all night and shoot through the night, which is what we did. And we got some really rather interesting things. And um, that was fun. Um, Oasis was slightly different. It was the cover of Mojo. I think it was 96 or it was early, early days. At that moment in time, I thought that Oasis were a, a Stones-Beetles tribute band.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Some would still say that was the case.
2: <laughs> and, you know, their reputation had gone before them. I was very happy to shoot for Mojo and I'm very happy to shoot with Oasis. Uh, but And I suggested a pastiche of the Stones on, on Primrose Hill, which people like the idea of. And so when they arrived at the studio, I don't know what had gone wrong. Something had happened, but they were in the most horrible mood. I mean, (laughs) in a foul mood. I don't know whether Noel and Liam had had a screaming match, but, but Noel marched through the studio. He gave me a look of such venom that I honestly, I, I, I just, I've never encountered anything like that before. <laughs> and, and, and he sort of threw himself onto a sofa in the, and, and appeared to roll over and go to sleep. And <laughs> Liam had gone straight into the kitchen, basically was kicking the shit out of the kitchen. And I, you know, I thought, well, this is ridiculous. This is such a sort of pastiche of a band playing at being a band. And I, I thought, you know... It's almost Spinal Tap, isn't it? <laughs> it's a pure Spinal Tap. There was a guy from the record company... Who was looking after them, who looked completely bewildered, didn't know what to do. But fortunately for me, again, it's a little piece of luck. Their tour manager was a guy called Robbie. And Robbie and I, I knew each other partly because I'd done a lot of work with Gary Moore and Robbie had tour managed for Gary. And so Robbie knew me. He knew what I was about. I said to him, look, Robbie, we can call this session off. There's no skin off my nose, but the band don't get the cover of an important magazine at an important time. Can you talk to them and persuade them to give it a chance, give us a chance? And he did and they did and we actually ended up getting a great session. But it was a it, the first hour was one of the great Horror shows of my career. <laughs> By the end, I mean I was you know I didn't know whether they were going to kill each other or anyway.
1: Well, I'm sorry to take you back there, my friend.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy telling the story. I just well, I imagine
1: flip side of that coin is an absolute legend, probably the biggest star you've ever worked with, and this guy top of his profession for fifty years. Wherever you go on the planet, you would recognise him. Mr. Bing Crosby. Oh, you. <laughs> Who did you think I was going to say?
2: <laughs> I wasn't sure for a second. I, was, I wasn't sure. Bing Crosby. Now, it's funny that you should bring Bing up. Bing Crosby was, in many ways, the biggest star I'd ever worked with at the time. Because he'd been... If you imagine working with the Stones now... That's the career that Bing had had then, if you see what I mean. Yes. Yeah. But in a way, it was much starrier, if you can, if you can say that, no disrespect to the Stones for a second, because, you know, Bing had been a film star and a Hollywood star and a global musical star. So he was a huge, huge star. Anyway, it's a funny story. I, I was asked to, he was doing an album called The Four Seasons, not the great Vivaldi piece, but, but the Four Seasons. So there were, they were, A a selection of songs that reflected the four seasons. And uh, Polydor Records wanted us to do a gatefold album with four portraits, each portrait reflecting the different season. But I had to do it in an hour in a studio in Fulham. (laughs) And, And so I used a technique called front projection. Which is where you can change the background. You project a, a, a transparency of an appropriate background uh, and the camera and the projector are lined up absolutely exactly. And so basically you just change the image and you can take somebody from being on a beach to being in a snowstorm. It's, it's that easy. And I'd set up four different lighting setups and they were all labeled, you know, autumn, winter, spring. And I had four beautiful backgrounds ready and. We were ready to go, and everybody was nervous—really nervous—because here was being arriving. And earlier on, we bought for Bing four outfits that reflected the four seasons. And these outfits had been purchased to Bing specifications from shops that Bing uses. And his office had been very clear about it the sizing, the shops, where he gets his hats, where he gets his jacket, all of this. So we'd gone to a huge amount of trouble um, to get the right clothes. And we've got four outfits. Bill arrived, everybody very nervous. It's my shoot. So I'm the one who's delegated to be the host, if you like. <laughs> so I take him into the dressing room. And it's funny. I have a memory of an old man, but of course he's, he's younger than I am now, which, which is a terrible, thing. It's a terrible thing to remember. But um, So I show him the four outfits. I say, you know, well, which one would you like to start with? And I'll get the studio set up. And he just goes, no. And I said, well, sorry, what do you mean? And he just goes, no, you'll no, you shoot me in this, what I'm wearing. And he said, and, uh, you know, we're going to do it now. And, I've got five minutes. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's uh, not that different from Liam and Dan, no, no, it's not that different. And I, I tried to explain, but he just wasn't having it. He was wearing, I think it's called seersucker, a sort of very small check jacket. He was ready for golf. <laughs> <laughs> just he's just popping pop in to do this and then he's off for a round, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But he was, as it turned out. <laughs> and and I, so I'm going... I'm not exactly panicking, but I'm thinking, you know, if I don't pull something out of this, then the whole thing is a disaster. You know, and this, this is a real problem. You can't argue with him. So we've got to try and make it work. So I rushed out into the studio, blurted out what was going on, told my assistant, we're going to do spring. So the spring transparency goes in, the spring lighting comes on, Bing comes out. I don't think he said hello to anybody. He sits down and on the Hasselblad camera, which is my my primary camera, a um, medium format camera, you get twelve frames on a roll of film. I got eleven frames, and he said, "That's it." He said, "If you, you know, basically, that's You know, if you if you haven't got it now, you're not going to get it." I'm going. And that was it. And, um, and we were left absolutely stunned. Fortunately, fortunately, we got, I think about eight really good friends you know that they abandoned the idea of the gatefold i think we used the back other backgrounds on one on the back and then one on either side of the inner sleeve with lyrics and things there is a if you've got them a moment there is a, a there's a follow-on to this because you know we were all stunned and we were pretty upset and we were we were put out angry. And we thought we'd gone to huge trouble to put something together that would have been a really special package for him. Anyway, some years later, I'm shooting a classical musician in the studio and a, a producer of the record arrives. I sort of recognize him that I don't really remember him. And he says to me, oh, you know, uh, you might not remember me. I was being Crosby's producer I was at that shoot and I said, oh, no, no. He said well what you don't know is he said um, in the early hours of that morning at the Dorchester Hotel he had been robbed he, he'd actually woken up to find somebody robbing him in his room
1: wow blimey
2: and he was in a terrible state. Uh, And and he just wanted to go. He didn't really want to do the session at all. And he'd been persuaded to do the session, to stop. And I think he was on the way to the airport. He was going to Spain to play golf. And I said, no, I didn't know that. What a shame. You know, that's a terrible story. I'm, I'm really sorry about that. You know, I wish somebody had told us. You know, I wish somebody had said... You know, can we postpone the session because he's had this incident? Can, you know, because we could have then tried to make it a, 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 an easier experience instead of just being confronted with this grumpy old man. And funny enough, you know, I've told this story because this is the story as I remember it, as we experienced it. Uh, this particular producer has written somewhere that I that I'm an arrogant <laughs> photographer who's sort of. You know, made up a story because my session was inconvenienced because this great star didn't want to do what I wanted him to do, and it's just funny because you know these things. These things happen to you. you that that moment, you have that experience. You have that. You, you you don't know everything else that's gone on. You don't. I didn't know he was. He died three days later on the golf course or something. You know, I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know our session was going to be the last photographic session he would ever do or the last album that would be released. You know, n- none of that. We knew all. We knew was that this big star arrived and refused point blank to do what everybody thought he'd agreed to do. So anyway, it's quite funny. Um, it's another great moment in the career of Gary Mack.
1: <laughs> I didn't know that story. Wow, that was amazing oh, to hear I, that. I
2: thought you asked me because <laughs> you No, <laughs> I, I just knew that you'd post about Bing Crosby and I thought that was a really cool thing. I thought that was I thought because of the of the Oasis
1: story. You were, <laughs> No, perfectly. It sounds, it sounds like I set anyway. that up beautifully, but I had no idea. <laughs> that was wonderful. Wow. What is it about those stars? That's different. So because obviously there are very talented musicians all over the world who, for whatever reason, never make it. They never get to that point. But there does seem to be an, an element where the ones that are successful also are very photogenic in the sense that you can take a good pick of them. They look great on shots, you know. Um, is that a link? Do you think that there must be something different about them in a way?
2: Yes, there is something unique and special. I mean, the talent, the depths of talent of somebody like Bing Crosby, but I mean, I was actually going to say Mick Jagger, for instance, that keeps the stones going and relevant. And the depth of talent is extraordinary. The... Photogenic aspects of it, I suppose there are an awful lot of great musicians who've never really made it because they weren't photogenic. You know, there's, all, <laughs> there's quite a lot I photographed a few. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but, and, and you photograph bands where you've got five people, three of them are really photographic, and you've got to try and lose two of them at the back somehow, you know. Or you've got to find a way of lighting them that's interesting and mysterious. So I suppose the stars, the people who shine, shine because of that marvellous, magical combination of extraordinary talent, the ability to transform themselves for the camera. Annie Lennox, for instance, Mm -hmm. is an absolute, you know, she's a chameleon in front of the camera. She just transforms herself. She's a fantastic performer. Kate Bush, I mean, she's a beautiful woman, but in front of the camera, she just is amazing you know absolutely fantastic staggering and they have they are special they are a special breed they're special and they need looking after and they they're very they're very special i there's not much more i can say you know they are an extraordinary breed of, of person and some of them are completely bonkers and some of them are incredible professionals and some of them are just magical performers i mean i'm thinking of Prince, for instance, and you just go, this man's talent is just beyond belief. And Annie looks extraordinary. Annie wears the coolest clothes. You know, these are just extraordinary people. No, I love I love them. <laughs> I love them. And, and I love working with them. And, um, you know, they are a joy and magical to, to, to photograph.
1: Well, look, man, I'd love chatting with you. I love Looking at your work, the book's fantastic. Looking at your work, incredible. it will be lovely to see you doing a bit of stuff with Mr. Weller Solo. Is there any chance of that? How do we make that happen?
2: I don't, I don't know. Uh, he's worked with oh, a really lovely photographer who I met, a couple of photographers who I met when I was doing um, the television series that we did about, about music imagery. You know I'm afraid names escape me. I think he's very happy with the people that he works with now. And I expect he feels confident in working with them. And he seems, you know, there are some lovely, I think he's done some great album covers in the last few years. And of course, he you know, he keeps making terrific music. And I don't know whether I could bring anything to the table anymore. I hate to say that my photography days are, are past, but I'm not sure what I can bring to the table at this point in my life anymore. You know, I have done, I've worked I worked in the music business for an awful long time. I photographed an awful lot of people. And in the end, I just don't really have the need or the ideas anymore. I want to photograph nature and other things just for myself. I I like Paul Weller's music very much. I think he's doing some great stuff and I wish him every best wish. But I, I... I don't think I could bring anything to the table. Now, if he calls me, I'll be there like a shot. <laughs> with a load of ideas, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. That I, I don't think that's very likely to happen.
1: Hey, look, this has been such a joy to spend some of your company. I love this. I two final questions for you before you go. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam. <laughs> face. It can what? be the jam, the Star Council or Solo. What are you going to go with?
2: I don't know. Because I don't know, I don't know, his work well enough to pick on one particular record. I think that uh, it definitely won't be absolute beginners. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Some of the later stuff I really like very much, but I'd have to, I have to look at the albums that I've got and, and, and remind myself of some of the more recent stuff. I can't just off the top of my head name a track. I'm afraid.
1: No, no, that's fair <laughs> enough. So, <laughs> The purpose of this podcast is to talk to people like yourself who've got these connections with Paul, but most of all like to dig into their careers, to hear their stories. And that's been fabulous. But it's also for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It was my one big regret. So heck, we've created a podcast to make that happen. If it ever does, what should I ask him? What should I talk to him about?
2: That's a really good question. I suppose really, well, I think one of the things that's most interesting about artists with such longevity is how do they make the transition? How do they evolve musically? Because there's always been a problem for an artist, particularly a musical artist, is that they become famous because of a number of records hit records, usually led by singles but often backed up by albums. but they have to evolve as artists, they have to write new material and maybe they want to change. I think he's made that change fantastically well and I think i'd want to ask him about how do you how do you evolve as an artist and, and retain your dignity and the loyalty of your fan base. I remember going to see Eric Clapton in the Albert Hall once. i have seen him several times. And he played the whole first half. He played his new album that nobody had heard. And the reaction was really negative because we none of us knew the music. Now, we would have taken the new stuff if it had been interwoven the old stuff, the stuff that we were there for. And it made me think very hard about how frustrating it must be for an artist to evolve and write new music and be asked to play endlessly the hits of yesteryear. And how do you evolve and how do you make that happen and how do you continue to create and produce and yet still satisfy and fulfill the needs of your base audience. I think that's an interesting area.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question because there is a bit there are elements of Paul's set list now where you go, you can't get I had this chat with Steve Pilgrim, like people would be up in arms if he got rid of Town Called Malice or Mm. Into Tomorrow or um, You Do Something to Me. So suddenly you're kind of narrowing down, narrowing down to only so many new tracks you can get in, which must be frustrating him because he wants to play the new stuff, right? Or he wants to play different old stuff, but you can't because you've got, those have to be there every time, you know?
2: Oh, and I suppose that's one of the reasons why shows get longer and and artists of his calibre do big, big shows, possibly, you know? I mean, in the olden days, you know, the Stones used to do... 25-30 25-30 minutes max and probably they'd only be allowed to do 15 or 20 before the audience invaded the stage and the police closed the concert down. No, but now you know they're out there how many what Paul McCartney did three hours at yeah. concert insane so i mean he can cover an awful lot of material but that uh, that interests me because i mean i'm you know i am pretty old myself i i'm i'm interested in how you your career evolves and how you at which point you choose to move on to the next stage yet without somehow losing everything that you've created and put together in the previous one
1: brilliant question hey this has been so lovely thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it
2: Pleasure, Dan. Nice talking to you. Thank you very much for asking. My thanks once
1: again to Gerard Mankovic for joining me on the podcast. You can find out more details in the show notes for this podcast on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Now, whilst you're there, do check out our store for exclusive podcast merchandise, and you can show your support for the pod by buying a virtual coffee as well. Let's check out who's been doing that this week. Alex McLaughlin, thanks to you. Gary Fairhead said thank you so much for doing this podcast. It's been truly amazing to hear the stories from your wonderful guests best wishes. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for that. Colleen and Jennifer Marsh. Thanks for your generous support as always. Phil Dew says, brilliant podcast, Dan. I'd love to hear DC Lee on it. Any chance? Fingers crossed. That would be great. Jen Milner, cheers to you as well. You can also leave a review. Trigger 40 says Wellatastic, a great podcast series where Dan has done his research on every single guest and what a selection of guests we've had on it too. It's a thoroughly enjoyable podcast and to hear some many memories and stories is wonderful. Long may Dan keep desperately searching. Cheers, pal. South Northerner says, Brilliant podcast series. This is a fantastic podcast series. I love how Dan continually finds guests who can share their stories and their time and involvement with Paul Weller. One day Dan will meet Paul Weller, but for now, I'll continue to enjoy the series. Thank you so much. Don't forget, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or you can buy a virtual coffee on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. If you fancy getting in touch on Twitter, at WellerFanPod, or on Instagram and Facebook, just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.